to the Saints FC podcast and I think we're actually at episode 114 now Tom not done many this season but it felt like it was worth a chat didn't it yeah some pretty significant news uh, in the last 24 hours or so definitely um, worth talking about I think Tom have you noticed what my new Microsoft Teams background is yeah so that's that's Van Dyke netting uh, the equaliser at home to Inter Milan. It is, it is. Were you there that night, John? I was there. I was absolutely um, buzzing. It was, it was so good. It was one of the best nights at St. Mary's, definitely. Probably the best evening game at St. Mary's. I might go as far as saying that. And um, I, was, I was still living in Hackney at the time. And I remember I was like waiting, I think, for the number 26 night bus um, at the Aldwych in London at like one thirty in the morning and there was another bloke who'd also been down to St Mary's that night to watch Southampton and we were just both like there on the pavement you know still bouncing you know still excited and uh, yeah I've got I've got that picture up as my background song because I think you know that could be could that be where we're headed back to European well I'd love another trip to Milan John so yes please yeah. I missed out on that last one I was in, in Malaysia with work you missed out. It was a great yeah. couple of days. Great Need to couple make it happen. Need to make it happen again. Um, <clears throat> so, well, I mean, we, we've got five games to talk about, three of which happened, two which didn't. Some games to look at in the future. Uh, but obviously the reason why I'm feeling a little bit more positive uh, today and yesterday is because um, Southampton now have a new owner or a group of uh, men, three of them, who have taken over the club. One's the money man, uh, two others I think are going to be a bit more, maybe one looking at the investment side, one looking more at the strategy side. And we're going to talk about them, Tom, and, and what this means to Southampton. Very exciting. Let's do this. Yeah. So a little bit of detail. So obviously we've had uh, Jishen Gao as our... Uh, owner for a fair old while, bought the club for around about 200, 250 million quid, uh, backed by the Chinese government. And then we, what's also been revealed um, by Martin Simmons in the last couple of days was that pretty soon after he bought the club, uh, the Chinese government informed him that he ought to get his money out of Southampton Football Club. And that, I think, probably explains the last four years of his ownership, isn't it? It's basically been treading water. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, imagine that. If the Chinese government tells you to do something, then by God, you do it, don't you? But, um, yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting time. It's sort of been a time of stagnation in many ways. Um, I can't think of many things to really write home about under the sort of Gao ownership, but I think... The Martin Simmons interview with with Adam Blackmore on 
on BBC Radio Solent was very interesting where he talks about the legacy of Gao is what's happened in the last 24 hours or so. And I thought that was really interesting the way they framed that in terms of, yes, he's, you know, he's not been an owner that's been like particularly communicative or has invested his own money into the club. But at the same time, you know, if you, if you believe what Martin Simmons is saying, he's got no reason to lie. And I, I think he's telling the truth. He's like, um, it's almost like um, his he wasn't as passive as maybe a lot of Saints fans thought in terms of making, you know, knowing that he needed to lose the club as an asset, but making sure it went to the right people. Mm. I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because Martin Simmons has made a big um, deal out of the fact that Southampton have many suitors. We've seen a few clubs change hands over the time that Southampton have been for sale. And I don't think it's been a secret Southampton have been for sale for probably the last two and a half years. Um, and it's interesting that Gao was asked to remove his money from the country and from Southampton Football Club, but didn't feel compelled to just take the first offer. So, you know, for that, I think, you know, we, we could probably be thankful. If you look at Burnley's takeover, mm. they were, you know, like them or loathe them, they're a very well-run football club. They're very successful for the size of the football club and the size of the fan base, and they had no debts, and they had a very, very good financial standing. And then they were bought out, bought out by an American outfit that used loans to purchase the club. And so those those loans are, le- are leveraged against the club. So now the club's in debt, despite year, many years of good management. And so, you know, we, we know some of the details of the takeover already. We know that Southampton isn't put in debt as a result of this takeover. It wasn't bought with loans. So um, it's been backed you know, with, with real money that's there. And, and so that's good. I mean, it's good that Gal didn't have to accept whoever the offer is. And then... Um, so I, I do have a Serbian friend. So I asked him about Dragan Solak. He's, he's the man who's put the money in. Um, and, you know, he, he basically said, well, nobody in Serbia has become a billionaire in 100% legitimate ways. Um, but, you know, has anyone ever become a billionaire anywhere? Um, you, know, and it, you know, without treading on a few people? Probably not. Um, and... You know, yeah, so it's a question. Yes, he's a billionaire businessman, in inverted commas, which can never be achieved in a legit way in Serbia. That was his opinion on the guy. Uh, but he, said, he also added that that doesn't mean that's bad news for the club. Um, quite often football fans have to put their morals aside, don't they, when it comes to a takeover. Um, I think the Newcastle takeover is probably the prime example of that. Um, Mohammed bin, bin Salam is well I mean you, you can do your own research I'm not going to yeah, uh, say not, what yeah, you should, yeah. should or shouldn't know about you know the Saudi yeah, Arabian yeah. state shillings or anything to the podcast mm. <laughs> but yeah you've got to be careful what you say about some of these people but yeah well, and, and, and Gao himself you know it was sort of relatively public knowledge that he had to pay a huge fine in China because he'd had a local official bumped off Um um, yeah. And managed to fail the the fair and proper or the fit and proper test, didn't he? So, you, I mean, th- talking about morals, I, there's not any immediate red flags, I don't think, with this buyout that we that we need to be really concerned about and think, oh, yeah, should we be protesting against the club because they're now owned by really, really evil people? 
Yeah, and I think the, the kind of the plurality of ownership helps sweeten the pill, I think, mm-hmm. a little bit. I mean, we've obviously seen, you know, this isn't just a sort of dragon coming in and, and, you know, and taking over the club. He's looking at it as a, as a business opportunity, sounds like, and, and that Southampton might well be the kind of flagship of this wider group. And I, it doesn't, I mean, I think, like you say, John, I don't think anyone gets to, to be a billionaire uh, by by being a nice guy or a nice girl, I think you know you invariably have to do some difficult and perhaps murky things. But what's what's clear is that this isn't like a vanity. I don't think this doesn't sound like a vanity purchase. It doesn't sound like a panicked purchase. It sounds like a very well considered, well reasoned, and well structured deal. As you say, there's no debt being loaded onto Saints. Um, our debt pile is is manageable. As it stands, there appears to be more money for transfers this transfer window than there was a week ago. Um, and I, I think, yeah, it's a really cliched phrase, but I think it's going to be evolution rather than revolution, isn't it, at St Mary's? Yeah, and I, th- I think that's probably <clears throat> the the first thing that we can probably you know assessing the the guys that are involved. So we've got Dragan Salak; he's the media mogul. From Serbia, uh, he has a personal fortune of over a billion pounds. He has um, set up the company, which is um, you know a huge telecoms and television and pay per view sort of company in you know southeastern uh, Europe. I'm very very successful at that. He's also got a big interest in golf and some sports uh, facilities like that as well. So and and he's from what we understand, he's the money guy. So he's stumped up the cash for the purchase. And then the other two guys who are involved, we've got Rasmus Ankerson, who uh, recently resigned from being a director of football at Brentford, just last month, in fact. Um, he's also a chairman FC Midgetland in yep. Finland, who you'll also remember from Europa League disappointments in the past. They beat they beat Saints, didn't they, John? From they memory? did, yeah. Dreadful business, isn't it? But there's yeah. good, you know, when you find out about their history, maybe that gives us more reasons to be excited about who's purchasing Saints. And then there's uh, Henrik Kraft. He's another Dane. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him. So I think we'll get into to him a, a little bit later as well. So, I mean, those are the three guys who've set up a business and they've invested in Southampton. And I think it's... If we're looking back at previous ownership models, they're, they're talking about this multi-club ownership model, which is a bit like the Red Bull group. But also I think in the way that we've seen the news developing, it wouldn't surprise me if Dragon Selak is sort of like the money man in the same way that Marcus Lieber was the money man. Yeah. And then if you like, uh, Rasmus Ankerson and Henrik Kraft are going to be more like the Nicola Cortese, so the more involved in the pitch and the direction and the strategy, I suppose. Is that how you're reading it as well, Tom? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it appears to be that way. I mean, this guy, Dragan, is obviously, he's an investor and he's looking to these, you know, to the uh, to the two Danes to realise his investment um, and to grow, you know, what appears to be the first of a sort of small Red Bull-esque style franchise. Uh, club um, structure, um, and you know I'm greatly comforted by the presence of Rasmus 
you know, I, th- I think it's like Brentford are, I think we all wanted to play them when we could have done a couple of weeks ago because we felt they were vulnerable and obviously we've got them on Tuesday. But they're just obviously, you know, they're coming to that Premier League and I think even the most committed, most committed football fans will only have heard of two of their players, Enrico Henry and Ivan Tony. But they don't look, you know, they don't look out of place at all. And you'd think Southampton, if Southampton can take that model, you know, because we have had a few duff transfers in recent years since the sort of the famous black box went up in smoke. Um, you know, you'd hope we'd be able to attract perhaps as we were a more established Premier League club with a bigger ground, um, you know, a better, you know, a, a similar but better player than Brentford can, which would bode very well because they've looked very, very good this year. Yeah, and I think kind of with Brentford, you might um, recognise some of the players that have gone through Brentford, uh, even yeah. perhaps more than the ones that, that are there at the moment. So, um, Saeed Ben Rama, for example, he is an ex-Brentford player, isn't he? So he's like one of the gems that they've picked out and sold yep. on for big money. And Ollie Watkins as well, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, he obviously went for huge amounts of money to to Villa. Um, and there is there's one other that I can't remember that, that, whose name escapes me, but is established Premier League. But you know, if, if that I mean that's Saints model anyway, isn't it? Bringing through players and selling them on, but we've just not really got it right over the last few years. Yeah, and, and so so Tom, let's get on to why does Rasmus's involvement particularly excite you? So Rasmus Ankerson, um, he's the the Dane who is the director at Brentford. I, I had a message from Billy on the Brentford Besotted podcast as well, who's spoken to him a few times. Um, and he says he's a really, really nice guy and very, very, very smart. So very bright and intelligent. Yes. And how's well, how, you know how's he applied that intelligence to football, Tom? Well, his TED talk I think you put on the on Twitter earlier was a really good example of this of being counterintuitive and, and talking about how winners have to be smart. It's not enough just to be big, and I think this is really relevant to the Southampton model, which is that we're not going to be able to outbid, you know bigger clubs for players. We're not going to be able to offer the biggest wages, but we need to be smart about what we do. And I think I, you know, I, we've spoken past, uh, you know, loads about sort of dinosaur managers that have been at Saints. Obviously, I think the last real dinosaur was Mark Hughes, but there is this sort of class of yet to be extinct managers that are linked with clubs like Pardew and Allardyce. Allardyce is probably a bit unfair, but you know, players like, you know, managers like Pardew and Hughes that sort of seems to represent like an older way, like Redknapp, you know, an older way of doing things. This guy seems to be the future. You know, he seems, he seems to represent, you know, that, that kind of intelligent, analytical, data-driven side to sport. Um, and that's exciting, I, I think, because it, it kind of gets us back to where we thought we were about three or four years ago. Mm. One of the things that I found reassuring about his TED talk, which, um, as Tom mentioned, it's, it's on our Twitter feed, if you want to go back and have a look for it, is he was talking about when Newcastle United became fifth in the Premier League. About, was it eight, nine, ten years ago now? It's 
12, season 12, 13, I think. Yeah. And he, he was saying that, that, you know, using this example that people say the Premier League never lie or the final league table never lies and blah, 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 and, and sort of brought out some of these old tropes. Then use Newcastle United finishing fifth as an example of when the league table does lie and about how they'd got incredibly lucky with their goal distri- distribution. So um, we sometimes talk about XG on this podcast and they'd basically had made their goals very, very efficient. So they finished fifth with a, a goal difference of plus five. And yep. uh, their performances didn't really merit being fifth in the table. They, they basically scored very important goals in very important games that gave them a lot of benefits, which is, which is great when it works out. But he was able to see that... Well, he used Newcastle United as an example of like bad management, didn't he? Say. So, Newcastle then like locked in their management team, their players, etc., for the next eight years on massive long contracts because they thought this is the way to success. And the next season they nearly got relegated. Um, and one of the things which I like about this is I think at Saints we have the ability to believe our own hype. So, you know, when things are going well, when we've made a few good transfers, suddenly we're preaching to the world about our black box, and saying, oh yeah, it's because we're much more intelligent than you and we've got this machine and it does this and that and the other. And then like, what followed the furore and publication about the black box was probably two, three years of dreadful transfer business, which is still hurting Saints today in terms of yeah. our performance and our finances. And what I really liked about his TED Talk is his TED Talk was almost like a cautionary tale on like, don't believe your own hype really make sure you know why what you're doing is a, is a success and also really understand if it's a fluke and so don't get don't get caught in, into that because I think one of the issues we've had under Gal and one of the issues we've had over the last few years is every time you try and stay the same you don't you you stagnate and you get a bit worse but it's not really necessary because you've got any worse it's because everyone else around you is constantly innovating constantly getting better and constantly striving to do better and I get the impression with Rasmus that he won't allow us to rest on the laurels. We'll always be testing and asking the questions, well, why is it working or why is it not working? And looking for the evidence base and making the decisions based based on that. Yeah, well, look, there's inertia around Southampton Football Club. And I think, you know, we're the lowest net spenders in the Premier League, Um the last time we signed a, you know, I think Livramento aside, you know, you know, Livramento Walker Peters, but before that, what went like a couple of years really without signing a player that had a real, you know, that 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 really looked like they were going to make a real difference, that mm. were going to make a real improvement to the team. Um, obviously, we lost Ings, and I, I think it's it, for us. It, I think the Gal period has just been this period of treading water and and the problem is is even if you look at teams like I mean like Burnley I know they're I expect the leverage dead but someone like Maxwell Cornet comes in at just real class and and we certainly in an attacking capacity haven't had that for a, yeah certainly haven't signed an attacking player like that in a few years um you know you look at the money at Everton still a huge amount of debt but they've just gone and spent you know best part of 40 million pounds on two fullbacks in the space of a week Everyone all the time in this league is getting better, and but it's not necessarily about money. You know, Brentford aren't spending a lot of money; they're above us. Palace haven't spent loads of money; they've just spent money 
really well. So the difference for Saints is always going to be, can we be that bit smarter? Can we, you know, like exactly what I say, can we be 2% smarter? Um, and hopefully that's what this this brings to the table because it just feels we've we've not had direction. But all credit to, to you know, I think to Ralph, and I know I've voiced some doubts, but I'm, you know, I'm back in team, back in Cam Ralph, I think. But it's, yeah, to keeping us in this league. And if that's Gal's legacy, keeping us in a, in the most competitive football, probably sports division in the world, then it's not a bad one. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, uh, I think we probably need to cover this on this episode, Tom, is in the last episode we did, we were probably a bit down in the dumps, I think. Yeah. And we were asking serious questions of Ralph and we asked, you know, well, you know, it's going to be those results against Brentford and Newcastle that are going to really define what we think of him come this podcast. Um, <clears throat> so we'll get on to that later. Yeah, it is because you ain't going to get anything from Palace, West Ham and Spurs, so at least through those two games. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so you know, we have stayed in the Premier League and that, that, has, that has enabled us to be sold yeah, probably at a good price and also attract quite an interesting project team because, you know, would Rasmus Anderson have left the Brentford project to join a Southampton in the championship? Probably not. No. But he obviously feels that Southampton can go, can take him further than he can go with, with Brentford. Which is interesting. Yeah. So, so he sees Southampton as a bigger club than Brentford and the potential to be bigger as well, I suppose. But we are an established Premier League club. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, despite our best efforts over <laughs> over like the, the the last calendar year, you know, we're there on merit, and we're now what like ten points out of the Premier League, out of the, the relegation zone for the Premier League. Um, he, you know, he's probably looking at it. We've got a very strong crop of young, talented players, um, including probably one of the best midfielders in the in the country right now probably one of the best right backs. And I think he's probably thinking this is a place where the next five years he can really build something. Yeah. So, I mean, so we've talked about Dragon Solak, um, media mogul, personal fortune over a billion pounds, which, <clears throat> I mean, it pains me to say it, but in the Premier League, that's not, not loads of money, is it, Tom? Well, it's not, uh, certainly not compared to everyone else. I mean, not compared to a number of the other clubs. Yeah. Um, but I, d- I don't think, I mean, I don't, again, I think even if the guy had a personal fortune of three billion pounds or four billion pounds, from what everything you're hearing and the club is managing expectations is you are not going to see us now go and spend 25, 30 million pounds on a player. Um, what you might see is you might see us now be in the hunt for the next Livramento. Mm. Although, if I had my way, I'd kill for an established goal scorer. Yeah, I mean, if we could take a, an established goal scorer and perhaps a Premier League quality goalkeeper, I think that yeah. would make a really big difference, wouldn't it? Yes. Well, it looks like Big Fraser's is not going to get a new contract, so someone's going right? to... the highest earner of the club, wasn't he, before War Prowse's deal? Yeah, but just, I don't know, from half the money. Who knows? I mean, it, I, someone, I mean, look, well, hey, well, look, let's see it, what, it, yeah, knows? I mean, let's see what happens. Yeah, maybe Dragon Rasmus and Heinrich have got um, have got someone else in mind. So, so let's get on to Henrik Heinrich. 
uh, Henrik Kraft, um, he's a venture capitalist, uh, works in private equity finance. For those of you that don't know what that means, it's basically someone who has money or they make money by investing it in very specific things. So, you know, a multimillionaire might just kind of put their money in a wealth management fund and that grows because it's spread across a number of different portfolios and generally it goes up and down with the economy. So a venture capitalist is someone who's a bit more involved. Often they take a greater interest in the companies that they're investing money in. And they, they choose specific companies to invest money in as well, don't they? So, um, yeah, you might see kind of like startup companies will talk about going for venture capitalists and they're trying to find someone who's going to give them some money, maybe some expertise and a, and a bit of interest. And so that's what um, Henrik does. And if you go to his LinkedIn profile, as I have, you can see that he's invested in, I, I mean, he's listed about 40 to 50 different companies. And he's got four main categories, um, business to business enterprise software as a service stuff. So, um, you know, the hotel map, enhanced world economy, we go to lots of things on there. Some of which you may have heard of, some of which you don't, but probably more interesting is he's got about 10 investments in sports tech or e-sports. So he's got an interest in sports. And the most interesting one I think is this Tonsa, T-O-N-S-S-E-R. Have you heard about this, Tom? Uh, no, please tell me, John. So there's a very interesting article on the BBC from about six months ago about FC Tonsa. And they put a team together and they performed very well against the youth teams of Paris Saint-Germain and Juventus and a few other really big names. And in the world of football analytics, there's about 55,000 professional football players who are really, really heavily tracked and there's really, really good data on them. So anyone who's playing in the Premier League, you know how many successful passes they make, dribbles, take-ons, tackles, interceptions, blah, 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 blah. We sometimes retweet some interesting stuff about Southampton players on the on the Saints of Sioux podcast Twitter feed. Um, but you have this pool of youth players, which is around about one and a half million players, and these are not tracked by you know, Opta or any of these other kind of football scouting and statistician things, or you know, a very, very small number are. And then there's this app called Tonsa where players rate their own teammates, their opponents, etc. Um, and so it's sort of like trying to crowdsource an opinion on players and build up better data for mm -hmm. these youth players. So, for example, you could be quite a hot prospect. You know, they'd be like, you know, have you seen Tom Parker, little Tom Parker? He's been playing, um, you know, for the old Kent Road FC under 12s and he's making waves. Let's go and have a, let's go and have a watch. So a couple of Premier League scouts will have, have a look. What they don't know, you've had a dodgy meal last night. You're not feeling very well. You put in a dreadful performance, maybe the worst performance ever. And immediately you're written off because, you know, a couple of Premier League scouts have shown up that match and, and now you're not valued as a football player. And, and this sort of application 
uh, rates. Yeah, I think it's nearly about 1.3, 1.5 million players. And they're rated by their teammates and yeah, various others. And the idea is that you can get some really good players through this. Erlinger Haaland was on this app when he was playing in Norway as, as an example of a famous user. So, um, I mean, that's that's quite interesting. It's interesting that he's an investor in that. So I think, you know, if we're looking at, is this a Newcastle-style takeover with a massive sovereign wealth fund worth billions and billions of pounds? No, it's not. Is this a takeover from a group of very, very smart, data-driven, tech-savvy people who are interested in football and interested in being a leader and ahead of everyone else by being smarter than everyone else, then then that's that's the takeover we've got. It's it's the money ball version of football. And I, I prefer that. But to me that sounds more exciting, but I'm a bit of a nerd. But I to me that sounds more interesting. And I think I think we might also attract the right type of player for us. You know, like I, the, the Saints fans love seeing exciting young players come through the ranks. I think that's, you know, it's a cliche that every club loves that, but I think Saints fans love that more than most. And this will hopefully help us identify that next generation. But I think as well, one of the interesting things in the Simmons interviews, he spoke about, he spoke about Tino. He also mentioned Romeo. You know, this type of player that comes in has. a has a strong background, but we can really drive them up to the next level. So mm. I don't think it is going to be all kids. I think you might see you know, players like, you know, like Romeo, where they've knocked around for a few years, not quite made it, but have clearly got a little something extra. So yeah, it's super exciting. And I, I think, I, I hope that, and I, I imagine Ralph will just be fully on board with this. You know, he strikes me as that type of, that guy kind of intelligent and intense kind of guy that, that could probably get fully behind this. So hopefully it's a marriage that will work well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it will. And I think as well, the, the Saints fans wondering, are we going to see massive changes afoot? And that's another thing that the Martin Summers interview um, with Adam Blackmore on the BBC did cover that basically the guys investing like the model that Southampton have got, they like the strategy. They were interested in investing in a club that had a workable existing strategy. So I don't think we are going to see huge changes, like a complete change of the management team, backroom staff, transfer policy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Financially, we're better off. We now know that we've got someone who's willing to invest money into the club rather than someone who's been told to get their money out of the club. So that might make us a bit more decisive in the transfer market. And maybe rather than buying one Tino Livramento, we might be buying two or three of those. Um, but again, it looks like we're trying to make the smart acquisitions rather than, yeah, it's Livramento over Kieran Trippier, should we say. Yeah, you, yeah. you know what you're getting with Kieran Trippier. He's a, he's a good fullback. Yeah, you know, he's he's played well on the international stage. He's going to cost you a fair bit of money. He's a decent player. Livermento, you're buying someone who's a bit more unknown, but could potentially be amazing. Potentially be better than oh. Kieran Trippier. Potentially already is better than Kieran Trippier. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you're buying you what? You're buying a 31 year old who's allegedly on 120,000 pounds a week. So that sounds all right, doesn't it? You know, that's that's a lot of money, obviously. And um, 
you know, he's got no resale value. So, yeah, Livermento is someone who, you know, in theory, plays well this season, plays better next season, could be looking at a £50 million, pound, you know, Saints could 10 times their money. So if that's the model, then it makes total sense. Um, I think one of the things we need to be careful of, though, is, as well, for every Livermento that works out, <laughs> there's going to be a few... yeah. Five million pound buys that don't work out, aren't there? Yeah, and I guess that I guess the difference is we can, you know, that as a business we can um, absorb those. Yeah, I think the problem for Saints was we had that weird time where almost the more money we spent, the more wrong we got it. Mm. Um, obviously, Creo being the kind of the deer. Yeah, of, of that time, you know, where we spend big. I think he was club record signing. And um, just went horribly wrong. It also went wrong before that. If you look at someone um, like Wesley Hay, Mario Lamina, Mario Lamina, um, Osvaldo before that, you know, like the Augustin more Delgado, spent, Delgado, going back, Ali Dia. You know, <laughs> the more money we spend, the more the more wrong we got it. And I think, yeah, you could even say up until this season, like Elunisi is another example of that, where a player that you know we spent relatively for Saints decent amount of money on all right it's come good now um but we lost two you know we signed him on a four-year contract and he spent two years of that on loan so we, 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 the more money we spent we almost got it wrong obviously there have been some noticeable exceptions but i, I think this is our this is probably our sweet spot mm-hmm. and, and i think the days as well of saints hoovering up you know your van dykes and your Tadiches are probably gone People are probably a bit wise to that now. Um, people are more willing to give players like that a punt, whereas before it was just Saints. So, yeah, I, I think maybe th- this is probably a successful strategy for us. It's just to hoof up the best of the, the young players. Yeah, and it's a similar sort of strategy that Brentford have used, maybe on a slightly lower level, that they actually got rid of their academy because they found their mm-hmm. location in West London. They couldn't compete with the Chelsea Academy. At all. So all the best players wanted to sign for Chelsea and none of the Brentford Academy players were getting into the first team. So they binned it off. And then they started giving players that had been released from Premier League academies a chance. And say, so perhaps we see that like a level up. I think they're still going to want to retain the Saints Academy, um, which I think will be a concern for some people knowing that, that history of Brentford getting rid of their academy. But I think we can still attract a good calibre of player at the Saints Academy because of the history we've got there. So hopefully we can make that can continue to work. Um, and then the other interesting thing is, I, I suppose as well, is that Katrina Lieber is still retains her 20% interest in the club. Yeah, which is, I mean, I guess it's nice from kind of a continuity and a stewardship kind of way and a, almost like a sentimentality kind of way. I think she's lost her right to veto the next owners, hasn't she? Mm. Which I think she had... Before she had like a, a super share that could that could veto um, the, the the owner until now, um, you know. Look, that the the family, the Lieber family name is forever going to be associated with with rescuing this football club. And I, you know, do, do you get that, do you get that warm with, feeling every time you see a Lieber crane or or digger? There's one in Greenwich near me, the big old naval crane, and it's just yeah, like it. 
You do. And also then you see like little fridges, don't you? you see all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah. Bloody must be loaded. But yeah, I think it's nice. It's good. And I think um, I, I, what I'm really looking forward to is like, I don't think there's going to be like huge amounts of openness. I don't think you're going to see like Dragan on the pitch, almost like a, you know, the kind of relationship that maybe the Leicester owners had. Mm. But I think what you will see is just more of a, I think hopefully there should be more communication and more and more information on the strategic direction the club is taking. I mean, it and would be a bit disappointing if from a media mogul we don't get any communication whatsoever, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I mean, but I think he's, you know, he's from he's not from this country, and he, you know, it might be someone who who doesn't talk to the world. Mm. You know, they do do get that, and I, but it sounds like in. In, in Rasmussen and, and the others, you've got people who are more used to fronting up and more used to communicating. Um, and obviously, but Simmons will still be running the club on a day-to-day basis, which gives everyone a lot of relief. Yeah. Um, so there's also this talk of a multi-club group, like the Red Bull franchise or maybe the Manchester City group or maybe the Pozzo family for a slightly more madcap version. <laughs> um, so is it, what, what do you think this will mean for Southampton? I mean, it sounds like we're going to be the cornerstone club. That's what they're saying. Yeah. So, so the main player in that. So that, does that essentially mean that Southampton then end up with like three or four feeder clubs around Europe? I think I, mean, I think you've answered the question there, John, which is it it matters depending on where you... How much it matters depends where you are in the food chain of that of that club system. Um, one, one thing is clear is that, you know, the... The model they have in Italy, which is young players go out on loan and spend a couple of years you know, honing their skills and toughening up at a lower league club, you know, works really well. And I think for Saints, if we can get the right players out playing, you know, if you look at players like Finnegan, who is by all accounts really highly rated by the club, like Keg Chalk, yeah, even maybe Thierry Small, they're going to struggle to get in this Saints team. Um, but would they benefit from playing elsewhere? FC Michelin, for example. Yeah, yeah, why not? You know, it can only make them better as footballers and, and human beings. Um, I, you know, so I, I don't have any concerns about it. I mean, where you, where you have a concern is where you start, like, changing the club's name and changing the crest and changing the colours, which are all things we've, we've seen in the past. And I hope that... We can maintain our identity, even as part of a multi, um, a multifaceted sort of you know sports republic organisation. I guess it's a bit of a watch this space for this one, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I suppose like where it could work in the advantage for Saints is that if you had three or four clubs around the world or Europe or, or wherever. Um, they might be able to attract better players in whatever country that is with the same saying, you know, well, we're linked to Southampton. So if you do well here, the obvious pathway is for you to end up in the Premier League with Southampton. Yeah. And I think as well, you're probably looking at, this won't be just European clubs that they will build up. You know, there could be clubs in Asia, there could be clubs in the US, um, Africa, where we already have, I think we already have sort of... A partnership, don't we? With yeah, a good- partnership with with um with clubs there so it'll be interesting but again i think it just really depends on where we sit in the structure if we sit at the top of the pyramid then happy days but 
if we're not, when they go and buy someone else, like a PSV or someone like that, then then it gets a little bit more sticky. Mm. Okay. Have we covered everything we need to cover on the takeover for now, Tom? I think we've covered everything we know, but like, generally it's really what, exciting. What, what's the feeling then? Let's talk about how are you feeling as a, forget your role as this erudite intellectual <laughs> on the Saints FC podcast. And now put yourself back into your Tom Parker, the fan shoes. Um, I don't think, we're, like I said, because I don't think we're going to see like uh, us splashing the cash on like mega players immediately I think it's going to be a really slow I think it's going to be a slow burn you know a two or three year slow burn um, I mean I'm just I'm excited in terms of just hearing that the club is on a more secure financial footing and that you know isn't that the, the they have now stability because I think the one thing with the Gao ownership is that it brought a kind of benignness which is good but the nature of Bowl accounts are doing business in China is that things can go very wrong for you very, very quickly. Um, and thankfully now that risk has been removed. So I'm not like climbing the walls with excitement, but it's more of just a kind of, oh, that's a relief, isn't it? Mm. Sort of more of the same, but better. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I, d- I don't think Saints are miles away from being a really good team. Mm. Um, I just think this will give everyone at the club a real lift, I hope. And, and, and I think as well, it comes at a good time for performances on the pitch as well. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think so as well. I mean, I, I guess my overall feeling is sort of like, I, I'm quite excited. I've got a, a picture of us playing into Milan as the background on my screen right now. And I think that's, I think that's possible again. I felt like with Gal, we were sort of the, on this inevitable slide. And I feel like if Ralph and the coaching team and Martin Simmons and everyone else at the club felt like there was a real risk of relegation, that with this new ownership, they would do something to make sure that that wouldn't happen. Now, I think we'll get onto the playing side of things and maybe talk about what the relative risk of relegation is this season. And maybe they don't need to be particularly panicked in that, whereas Newcastle definitely do, for example. Mm. Um, That's saying, you know, I don't think we need to be arrogant and assumptive about it. We still have some work to do to to secure safety for the next season. But this is much more of a long term. And the other thing that, so my my slight cautionary feeling on this is... If you look at Rasmus and Henrik, their ability is sort of building something from the bottom, from the scratch, from scratch, and yeah. being that underdog, overachieving and working your way up a pyramid. In terms of the relative football pyramid, Southampton are already pretty close to the top, and I think sometimes that yeah. requires a slightly different thing: is to you know, the most important thing that Southampton do is maintain their Premier League status. And then the next important thing is then to improve and, and get better. So, um, you know, with exactly the same tricks that uh, Rasmus was involved in, in Brentford, work for Southampton and maintain our Premier League status? Maybe, maybe not. If we want Southampton to get to the next level, which I think 
probably we're all hoping that new ownership will allow us the sort of um yeah experiences that we had under Kuman and Pochettino of like you know getting into Europe and, and doing well I, I suppose we'd be into when we were under Claude Puel but you know those three four seasons I think that's mm-hmm. that's where we'd really like to be isn't it yeah I think we're realistic we're not asking to win the league although that would be nice I think we're looking for a club with an identity with a with a with a signature way of playing with exciting young players um and the and the and i think just a club that challenges and i I think this has been a really difficult thing with saints is you know to your point earlier about the hype every time we seem to have done well our crash seems to have been like our come down is massive isn't it like it like like if we think about like you know just over a year ago we were beating Liverpool at home and yeah. Ralph was crying two months before that we'd been top of the league you know we were I think when we beat Liverpool we moved up to sixth or something and then it's just been like this incredible come down from there and I think maybe what I would like from the takeover is just like a bit of just to get some slow steady consistency a bit more of a sort of like a general low hum of good vibes. Yeah, rather than the crushing, gnashing, uh, living room come down that, uh, that has been the kind of last calendar year for Saints. It's more about that, that kind of just a gentle, soft, crunchy landing. Yeah. Sort of hard. Like, like maybe just like one or two losses after a victory, but then win again. Yeah. And no nine nails. Yeah. And no, a good cup run. Yeah. We, do, we, do a, we had a good... Well, I mean, we're quite good at good cup runs, but, you know, to get to a semi-final and feel like you're competitive would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because the last two FA Cup semi-finals, I mean, the one against Leicester, I think, is maybe the low point for me in Sporting Saints in the last five years. Even more so than the nine nils, because the opportunity was there and the performance was so, so bad. But I, John, I think the players we've got, I know they've not been amazing this season. I actually think they've probably been a bit better. Yeah, if we look at now a halfway point, probably a bit better than we thought we'd be doing um, without Danny Ings. Um, I, I think what I do think we've got is a hungry group of players, is what I would genuinely say. I think if you look at, I think last year, in retrospect, we were probably car- we carried Bertrand, we carried Vestergaard at times, and we definitely carried Danny Ings, even though Danny Ings did a good job for us. Um, and you can see now that those players are other clubs that they're not, they're not, you know, they've not flown. Mm. Um, certainly, the Leicester two have had an absolute nightmare. So, I, I think now what we have got is, um, I think we've got a more Ralph group of players, which is this sort of young, hungry, motivated group, talented group. Now we just need uh, to have the best, young, hungry, motivated group of players, don't we? Yeah, but I, I think in I think in I think we've got like two. I think you've probably got world class is a bit strong. I think Will Prowse is probably world class now. If you're performing week in week out in the Premier League like he is, then you're world class. Um, and in you know Tino's just been named in the mas- marker, but eleven best young players in Europe. Wow. Um, was the ones to watch. So, um, I don't. I think there's reasons to be excited, and I think if Ralph can just get it right, 
which is a big ask. But I think if Ralph can learn and, and evolve, and maybe this is an opportunity for Ralph as well to yeah to be better and to learn. So I, I mean, I, I think we know sort of where we're going in the medium and long term with this club. In the short term, what could they? do to immediately improve the fortunes of Southampton Football Club. So, I mean, we're in a January transfer window now. Are you expecting anything to happen in in this January transfer transfer window? We don't generally get... There's no good transfers, are there, in January, really? Manolo. No, you know, Manolo's, yeah, probably the exception. But, like, you don't get players that are... You know, because really, really good players that are playing consistently don't leave their clubs mm. in January. Um, there'll be players floating around. I don't think Saints are far. I mean, there's talk about us getting, I know you mentioned getting a new goalkeeper. I don't think now's the time to do that because it will look like then we have three senior goalkeepers on our books. Plus maybe Caballero. Um, so we'll have four. Um, I, th- I think what I, I think would be better for us is a real astute use of the, of the, of the loan system. Mm. And I, you know, I don't like the guy and he drives me mad. And he scored against us at Wembley, but someone like Lingard, you know, yeah. like and like just bring a real class, you know, like just a real element. Just yeah, you know, we we thought we had that with Minamino, didn't we? Just that kind of mm. like that different level of class, and I don't think we did in the end. With a few exceptional moments aside, so I think he had that different level of class. I think it was sort of his everything else, wasn't it? Talented guy, but. It's too small. Yeah. Slight. But, um, luxury player. Luxury player, which we can't have. So I, I don't think we're that far away. I, I think realistically, we're probably not going to go and buy the striker we probably need. Um, Is the striker we need brochure? Yeah. I mean, that, that would be a great signing, wouldn't it? Mm. I think that would set down a real statement of intent. I think if if you made Brochure permanent, presuming he performs as well as he does in the in the first half of the season, the second half of the season, and then bought a really good goalkeeper. Yeah. What else would you do? I don't think you need to do anything. I mean, I think I think what you more need to do is you need to clear out some dead wood. Mm. Um, what about players like Diallo, Elianisi, Gineppo? Adams, Adam Armstrong, Jan Bednarek, are these players good enough Diallo. for the next phase of Southampton? Look, I think Diallo is, I think, I think they all are. One I have real concerns about is Gineppo. I just don't think Gineppo is ever going to make it at Saints. It's just not going to happen. I don't think, I think he's had too many chances and he drives too many people mad. I think El Yunusa they'll want to keep because El Yunusa actually looks like a really tidy footballer. Um, and Benarek will come decent again. I, I, don't, I think it's more about like, you know, what do we do with players like Walcott? What do we do with like Gineppo? Because my concern is like, even like Shane Long to an extent, although he played really well against Spurs, is like these players are blocking pathways to the mm. first team. And they're, on, they're probably on a lot of money. I mean, Walcott's, God knows what Walcott's on. I mean, you know, between Walcott, Long and Gineppo, you're not probably getting that much change out of £150,000 a week. So... I'd be surprised if you're getting any change out of £150,000 yeah. a week, to be honest. So they're blocking pathways to the first team. So for me, it's, it's, it's where do we kind of... Where do we strengthen that we, that we can get real quality in? Mm. But like 
player like Abreu, I think, would send a real statement of intent because Saints fans love the guy. Yeah, and he's a, he's a literal giant as well. He is. I mean, it, he's he's done so well as well. I mean, I think we can't. Yeah. The, if you look at the starts to goals ratio, it's just it's it's really good, isn't it? He's also doing that Danny Ings thing of scoring goals that he shouldn't really. You know, you look at like the goal against Brighton, the goal against Palace. These are kind of very Danny Ings type goals. Right. I mean, Tom, we've we've basically done this episode. We've got five games, I think, that we were looking forward to, and maybe only three of them actually happened. And we've got some games to look at in the future. And we've also got our question to answer on a we Ralph in or Ralph out at this point. So let's quickly get into this. Palace 2-2. Oh, what a free kick from James Ward-Prowse again. Broger wins it. Yeah, what a free kick. And I, I, I think this was maybe was this the turning point for Warbrows this season. I think it was. was probably, wasn't where, it? You know, because he hasn't probably been at his best, but it was just magic. He just hits them so well, doesn't he? I mean, you know, and I mean, I think Saints have to play more for those fouls. That has to be a, a real strategy for us. Is playing for those fouls in and around that, the, the, you know, the D, because he's just lethal. He is. I mean, it was a, an absolute thing of beauty. And Brocious goal as well. But it's like a Danny Ings goal, isn't it? He takes it early. Yeah. Take, you know, doesn't shoot when you think he's going to shoot. He shoots early and takes everyone by surprise. I mean, I thought Butland maybe could have done better on actually both of the goals. Um but again, I think what Broger gives us is, and we saw him against Leicester and he didn't actually play particularly well against Leicester, but, you know, he just brings, but we saw it and we'll talk about the West Ham guys, this just ability to drag the team forward. Mm. I mean, there was a funny comment I read, I think, in the Guardian, a Guardian review of um, Chelsea versus Aston Villa, which is they compared, I don't know if you saw Lukaku going through against Target, you know, a little target who we love, you know, but like they compared it to Jonah Lomu and the England rugby team, you know, where he just destroyed, he just like runs yeah. through him and just people just bounce off him. And I think for us, Broger can be like that. He can, you know, we're a team that's going to be under pressure and what Broger can give us is that ability to, to bring the ball forward um, and to relieve the pressure as well as score goals. And I, th- I think we saw that against in the, um, in the Tottenham game. <laughs> Yeah, didn't we? I mean, in that second half when we were under a lot of pressure, he actually had a chance, which he did quite well with, didn't score with it, unfortunately. But it's that sort of thing where if you can provide a threat, then the opposition can never commit every single one of their players to attacking you. Well, look at the you look at the penalty we won against West Ham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no way on earth we should ever have been able to get a penalty from that situation. But Broger just basically steamrolls past one and then gives Bowen, um, not Bowen, um, oh, I can't remember, the, the, the centre-back, no option, not no option, but it kind of just has to bring him down. Mm. And he has no right to do that. You know, he kind of runs from well, just what, out. What I think is quite, you know, the West Ham centre-back actually is very sensible because he sort of starts committing the foul outside the box. But Brace is so strong that he then stumbles doesn't he and then crashes yeah. into brochure in the box and takes him out and, and and most strikers i think would have fallen at the first tackle and then you'd have had a free kick on the 
edge of the area. But because Brescia was so strong, still saw a sense in chasing the ball and trying to get into the box, to try and get a shot in the way. It actually meant that he was upright for longer and then got taken out when he was in the box, which which won us the penalty. Yeah. And maybe that's a young thing. Yeah, I mean, that's mm. a youth thing. kind of thing. I'm just going to keep going. Um, but he looks, Brocha looks to be a different quality, doesn't he, from the strikers we've got. If you look mm. at like, and, and Armstrong and, you know, definitely long, I think Brocha just seems to be more complete. Well, um, Armstrong also has a similar sort of shoot on site policy, but with just much, much less success. Yeah. But I think as well, it's it's Brozier doesn't seem to panic, does he? He seems to just be very calm. I mean, I you know mentioned it already. But like we talk about that goal against against Brighton, where he just sort of completely puts the defender on his backside, and then coolly does it with the outside of his boot. He's, you know, that's a very very sophisticated finish for what like a twenty one year old. Yeah. Um, so right, we're pro Brozier. We've established that West Ham. We won three two, Tom, at the at the London Stadium. I mean, Bednarek has broken his curse. I mean, he broke that, I suppose, in the two two game against Leicester, because we didn't lose three two. Um, but you know, this one really cemented it. He got the winner. I know this was, but this was um, this was a funny game, about, wasn't it? This was an amazing game, and you talk about you know t- turning points, and it's a cliche, but again, I think this this could be the you know this game. I'm probably going to prove wrong, but this game could be the turning point for the season because it was every everything was set up to go wrong. You know, like Antonio's back. We're playing at West Ham. We had a game not too long. You know, you know, a very strong, tiring game in the days running up before it. West Ham are playing really, you know, a bit of a dodgy run, but playing really, really well. But what you saw from Saints is something you haven't really seen them do this season is have, like, mental toughness. Yeah, I mean, because we gave away the lead after going, you know, 1-0 up with a lovely Elianusi goal. Antonio gets equalised and you think, oh, here we go. We've seen this before. But then we get another goal. And then we concede another. And you think, oh yeah, here we. Oh yeah, this is it. We're definitely going to throw it away now. And then we go on and win the match. I mean, it's inconceivable, Tom, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I think yeah. Why why did I think we look better with Forster? I think we look better with Forster. Yeah, he just looks stronger. He looks more commanding. Um, so I think we we feel we look better because of that. And I think as well. Ward Prowse shows his real quality, didn't he, in that game? Like he was just everywhere. He was the Ward Prowse of last season, and a great penalty and a brilliant free kick for Bednarek's winner. Yeah. You know, like impossible to defend against. And but they held on. They showed the mental toughness to hold on. And I think that we saw that then move into the next game. But it's a you know West Ham away. I've been there when we lost three 0 I think. We were three 0 down in like thirty minutes. Just the last time I was at the London Stadium, it's a horrible place to go. Um, but yeah, I, I just think maybe it was a chance for Saints to kind of show some real resilience and some real mental toughness. And I think they did that. And I think they took that into the next game. Yeah, and and the game against Spurs, I suppose. Yeah, we go one 0 up with a beautiful James Will Prowse strike. Um, we play really, really well. We looked like the better side against Tottenham, I, I felt like, for most of that first half. 
although we were snapping into challenges. <laughs> we weren't the- getting anything from the ref. Like the ref was buying everything that Tottenham Hotspur was selling. Um, and you could see the Salisi sending off coming probably about 20 minutes before it happened, couldn't you? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Ralph had told them to get real tight on Kane and on Son and just really sort of like clatter them, really, and not let them turn with the ball. And it worked well, except it was painfully obvious that someone, probably Salusi, was going to get sent off. Um, and lo, it happened. But if we talk before that, you're right. I mean, the goal from Wall Prowse was just quality. He doesn't score that many, really, from open play anymore. Um it just, I think it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, that's why there's they're professional footballers, isn't it? It's because they just, he knows what he exactly has to do. And if he knows, if he gets through the group of players in front of him, it's going in. Yeah. He knows that. It was a brilliant strike. It's just a, a moment of real class. Yeah. I mean, it was lovely. We then had Kane scoring the penalty after Salisi got sent off. We also had Kane scoring a marginal offside. I think this is this one of the things that VAR can do well. I know people don't like these very, very, very close offsides, but it is something that is black or white, isn't it? You're either offside or you're not. It's binary. I mean, yeah. I, for what it's worth, I you know I saw all sorts of uh, post game kind of reasoning of like, well, you know, he's so far away from goal. And he's still got so much to do that can you really claim he's got an advantage or you know, even like they should draw the lines differently depending where you are on the pitch. So if you're four yards out, the lines are tighter than they are if you're 40 yards out, which all seems, you know, it's just more madness. Um, Saints are very I, I good. don't think football needs more complicated <laughs> rules, does it? Than the sort of like vague rules that they're trying to interpret yeah. at the moment. I mean, for me, Saints play a really tight offside trap. They did it in the first half of this game with Ben Davis um, from a free kick. And I I think it's maybe a really strong element of Saints game that we probably don't get enough credit for is, is that is that ability to play a really high line but play it really well. Um, but the guy was offside. Yeah. I mean, it was a brilliant first though, wasn't it? <laughs> That's lovely. I mean, I thought sort of fair play if you're going to lose... But then as soon as they showed the replay, I suddenly thought, oh, he looks like he's offside before they yeah. drew the lines. I thought he looked yeah. offside. And then when they drew the lines, he was still offside. So, But Saints were brilliant. Yeah. Weren't they? The, the like, only thing was, yeah, we've just been bigging up Fraser Forster, but whisper it quietly. Should Fraser Forster's blunder being a goal for Spurs? I, you know what I thought was really weird about what Fraser Forster did is I mean, Fraser, my dad thinks he's a vampire because he's really terrified of crosses and um, that's what he always calls him the vampire but like what I thought was really weird about what Fraser Forster did is if you look at when he jumps he jumps with his he doesn't anticipate the flight of the ball so he can jump with his hands up so he can catch it in the air he jumps so that he has to catch the ball like in his midriff yeah which is a really weird thing to do. Um, I don't know. I mean, look, any contact on the keeper and you get a foul, I actually think that's a really bad rule. But um, we'll it take it. Well, it's in our favour. Well, it's in our favour. And, you know, next week it might not. So I think, I mean, what I would say about that rule is it is kind of applied fairly consistently. Yeah. So whether you like it or not, generally. Well, a bit like the offside rule, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's tight, but generally they can 
yeah. fairly consistent. Um, so, the, I mean, they, we, when we were looking at this, we were thinking, well, you know, Palace away, maybe we'll get something there. Um, West Ham and Spurs, we sort of written off as we're not going to get any points from. And, and let's really look at the Brentford and Newcastle games, the opportunity of getting points, and then we'll assess how Ralph has done. The, the Brentford game was cancelled due to COVID cases, which I felt a bit miffed because, uh, as I understand it, Southampton have put in really stringent measures to avoid passing COVID around the, the training ground. So the players all travel separately. They have team meetings in the car park outside. They don't get changed together. They get changed in their cars. And, you know, all of this stuff, which must be having a toll on the perfect preparation. You know, when I went for a wander around Staplewood, you know, they're all, you know, the gym and the saunas and the ice baths and the physio and all of that. It's all quite involved and quite, you know, group activities. So, it, you know, I imagine that's affecting Saints. Also, the transfer policy has been to have like that depth so that if you lose a player, you've got an, another player who can step in. So I feel a bit miffed that Brentford and Newcastle, well, especially the Newcastle one, which I don't think was anything to do with COVID, but more about injuries and the fact that they can strengthen their squad on a rearranged fixture. Um, I was pretty disappointed with both of these cancellations because I felt like Saints were going well. I felt like Saints would get points here and and had they not been cancelled, I think we might have been looking at an undefeated five-game Christmas period and quite a lot of points. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, you could argue that if they'd have played one extra game, would they have had the energy to hold on against Spurs? So yeah, maybe not. Who really knows? I think the... The, the Newcastle game does seem to stink a little bit. You know, Newcastle have four professional goalkeepers on their books. You do wonder why they can't play this game. I mean, and I don't know why the, the Premier League just doesn't make it easy and say players that were not registered at the club at the time of the original fixture can't play in the, can't play in the game. You know, that for me just seems to like, it's very hard to argue against that. Mm like a cup tie almost do players still get cup tied yeah they that, do yeah. yeah yeah so like you know and so it's not like without precedent so for me that would be the fair way of doing it because if you think about it now like Newcastle are going to stock up on a load of players and they're not it's not going to be the same team that the Saints are going to play now that being said um, it, it might not really matter by the time Saints play Newcastle because you know, even if they can bring in three or four really good players, they're still going to have time to gel and they're still going to be a team of seven plus subs that are the original Newcastle lot. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that that's the one that seems to have stuck in the craw a little bit. But I mean, I think, you know, whatever you look at, they've never got Wilson for months now. Wilson's out for months. Sam Maximilian, who is their best player and they will not be able to sign a better player than Sam Maximilian, is going to be out for weeks. So we'll see. But I, I think, you know, it might, by the time this game's rearranged and, and what are they looking at rearranging? They're looking at, what, about three weeks in between cancelled fixtures and rearrangement? Mm. So I mean, we've got Brentford next Tuesday, haven't we? So that's come around quite quickly. Yeah. So we might still play Newcastle you know, by the end of the month. Yeah. So we've got Swansea in the Cup coming up this weekend, Tom. I think we, you know, we've already said that we fancy a Cup run, so let's hope they put out a decent side. Will they? Away to Swansea with a Premier League home fixture coming the following Tuesday? But, but isn't, this the, isn't this the thing now? We've got the depth. 
so like you know if you think about who might play in this game you're still looking at probably Fraser Forster because you know you're looking at maybe Thierry Small you know even like Perot could play this game yeah Diallo um, Diallo Ward Prowse will play every game that he can um Walker Peters will probably play right back. You know, you're still looking at a centre-back pairing of what, like Lyanko and Stevens or Lyanko and Benarek, which is still a really good centre-back pairing. Up front, Adam Armstrong will want this game, he'll want to score goals. You know, so I, th- I think that's the difference now, isn't it? Like last year, you'd have been thinking like, oh Christ, like who are we going to play? Because we've got a Premier League game three days later. But it doesn't seem like that now. It seems to be we've just got that little bit more depth. And I think you're right. And I, I think you'll see players like Diallo um, come in. And I, but I also think we might, we're looking at what, Simeo from the, um, from the reserves. Yeah. Um, the young Belgian striker that they, that they quite fancy could, could get some minutes. I can't remember his name. His name completely escapes me. Um, but I, th- I think we've got the strength and depth there now. I don't, th- I don't think it's the kind of alarm that it was last year. Okay. So feeling confident we think we're going to beat Swansea? Well, Swansea haven't played since December the 11th. They'll be well rested then. They'll be well rested. Um, although the funny thing is seemingly like being well rested actually seems to be quite, you know, if you look at a lot of the teams that have had like real time out of the game, actually seems to be not working very well for them. Yeah. I mean, you know, this will be like the best part of a month by the time they've played again. So, and also they're, they're training with a squad of 12 at the moment. But they have got Michael Obafemi, goal machine. Is he allowed to play against us? Was he sold or was it alone? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he's barely played and he's barely, I think he scored one, so he'll definitely play and score against Saints. Yeah. So, um, I think we can feel quietly, and also obviously because of COVID restrictions, they can't play to a crowd of more than 500. So, that's that element out of the game. Yeah. Um, do you think Saints will be using the same hotel as they did last time? Didn't we, didn't we get like thrown out or was there a fire alarm or something? Yeah, there was, uh, we weren't allowed to stay, weren't we, or something before the relegation battle. I can't remember. There were some hijinks. I've forgotten what they were it's, now. Someone cancelled our booking or something. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think we'll go through against Swansea. I think they've got the quality yeah. to do the, Then we got Brentford the following Tuesday. Rearrange fixture. They've got a lot of injuries. Haven't they? They've got like kind of two or three players off of the African Cup for Nations, and they've got about six or seven or eight players out injured, um, including Rico Henry. They've still got Ivan Tony. Um, but again, it's probably, I mean, you've got to think, I mean, Saints are going to want to, I think there's genuine disappointment about the Newcastle game because Saints want to play these games. I think Saints probably feel like, Hasselman probably feels that we've got an advantage we can press at times mm. like this. And I think he wants to play the games, and I think they're really disappointed when they get cancelled. So I yeah. think they'll really snap into Brentford. I think I think that's a good thing, isn't it, for a football fan that your team wants to play games because they feel like they're going to win. Yeah, and I think they'll want to play Brentford. I think they'll want to. And I think as well they'll know that if they can beat Brentford, it, it, it moves us up a couple more places in the table. Just makes us that slightly bit more comfortable. I, I think they'll. I think they'll want to beat them. Yeah. So I mean, we said we'd have a look at. Ralph standing as a football manager for Southampton. What, what what do we think? Well, I can't. I mean, I don't think I was quite Ralph out last time, but I was worried he might have taken us as far as we could go 
My worry is that he'd lost the players. Yeah. But I don't think that's the case. I think the performances, the last three performances we've seen have been as good as we've seen uh, probably since the Liverpool game. Um, certainly, I think the Spurs performance was actually probably one of the best under Ralph. So, um, I think the, the the players are still really playing for him. And, and I think, let's give the guy, you know, the new owners seem to be pro-Ralph, although they would say that. So, let's see what he does. But I, I think, all things considered, considering we've got two strikers, well, three, I mean, who are strikers? Apart from Broger, you've got Adams, who scored, uh, what, three or four Premier League goals. You've got Armstrong, who scored two Premier League goals. Um, I think he's done a remarkable job, considering we're a team that doesn't want to score any goals. Yeah, I mean, we let, let's let's not kid ourselves. I mean, we're 14th in the division. We've got 21 points at the halfway points. So we've played 19 games. That form would typically be enough to have you pretty well safe. I think we'd want to improve on that. Although our home form, we have we've only lost one at home, haven't we, this season? Mm. Yeah. Again, again, it's it's lots of draws, isn't it? You know, we've won four, drawn nine, lost six. You know, if we can turn a few more of those draws into victories, that would be a big help. Looking at yeah. the bottom four teams, Watford, Burnley, Newcastle, Norwich, we've got ranging from thirteen to ten points, which is remarkable, really, isn't it? at the halfway point of the season to have so few points. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to be a, a, a league this year where Chelsea, Man City and Liverpool are going to probably win every, almost every single one of their games, aren't they? And then everyone else has to kind of just try and get as many points from the, you know, those sort of, those sort of six games for everyone this season are kind of a write-off. Um, but the, look, Saints aren't safe and we'd be naive to think they are, but you I think the Newcastle situation is just so interesting because if Newcastle, you know, Newcastle almost, they're not, they're obviously not down, but like Newcastle and Burnley seem to be just in complete free fall. Mm. And Burnley again are an interesting one because Burnley aren't going to have money to spend and Maxwell Corner has gone off to African Cup of Nations. Yeah. And also, I mean, Watford have lost their last five games as well, haven't they? Yes, but I, I, the thing with Burnley, what's what's interesting about Burnley and why Burnley are going to get really screwed over, right, is Burnley have played what? So Burnley have played, um, have now played 17 games. Some team, you know, so they're now like two behind Newcastle, two behind Leeds, two behind Saints, three behind Palace and three behind a lot, four behind some of the teams at the top of the league. So they're going to have, they have a smaller squad, and they're going to face now fixture congestion. Yeah. Because other teams with bigger squads have called off games. So in a way, you know, Bernie's internal resilience is probably going to count against them because they'll just be playing a complete, you know, a real horrible run of games. Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. But I think the, I think the three you've got there... It could go down. And after the week we've had, I'd love to see Newcastle go down. <laughs> I just sort of have a feeling that Burnley and Newcastle are likely to get... Yeah. You'd sort of fancy, like, Newcastle's millions and Burnley's sort of weird consistency might get them out of trouble. 
Watford and Norwich, I think uh, I see both of them going down. Yeah, I mean, I've got a good mate of mine who's a Watford fan and he is not, um, seems that he's not optimistic. Um, what Watford have done is they've kept their, you know, Dennis and Saar, who are both due to go to AFCON, and they've managed to sort of keep them by just refusing to let them go. Um, whether that will make a difference, I don't know. But I I just, yeah, I'm, I, I'm kind of politely disagree with you. For me, Newcastle feel like they're in... Free fall and Burnley probably even more so right now. So anyway, we're, we're feeling confident that Saints are going to get dragged into a relegation battle, are we? Yeah, I think so. Although just looking at Newcastle's games, Saturday 15th of January, Watford at home. Saturday 22nd of January, Leeds away. The Tuesday in February, Everton at home. You know, that's... that's it could be nine points. That, it could be, or it could be none. And then that's it. But they'll be looking at us three winnable games. Yeah. Let's let's get on to the emails. We've had an email from Lawrence Tall. Genuinely great to hear discussing Saints again after an absence. We've had quite a few of these, Tom, so it's nice. Thank you for getting in contact, Lawrence. Uh, only just listened to the pod and was in the same frame of mind as you prior to the December run of games after Arsenal. But two draws and a win, plus the postponed games, gives a much better outlook. Ten points clear of Burnley in 18th. Compact middle of third Good. of the league has... 11th place site with a good run and agree with all the discussion on how wasteful in front of goal our strikers are and the goalkeeper situation but maybe we have to accept the level the club is at this is obviously written pre-takeover um hope some good talent breaks through and enjoy the good results and performances when they come there'll be just enough for them for the streaky saints to make it through for another year of the same (laughs) i'm a bit more optimistic i don't think we will have another year of the same um, but yeah there's a lot of truth there but I, I I've got a feeling we're going to go on a bit of a run John yeah well listen to Philip Palmer thank you for resurfacing I was a bit surprised at how gloomy the recent podcast was in tone I feel a bit more upbeat as Tom said we're very close to getting it in right getting it right in my opinion the team are exciting to watch and with improved in-game management over the last month or so we'd be much further up the league come on your heads I haven't been to a game for two years stuck in Vietnam on a long-term contract until February. By then, things will have improved. Ha ha! Thanks again for the podcast. I've missed you. Well, Phil, thanks all the way over there in Vietnam. Back pretty soon to Saints with new owners and rocketing up the table. We hope. There's. I wonder if that guy right. There's a guy who comments on Saints articles on the Guardian who's really well informed, and he's in Vietnam. So that could be the same guy. He's like a celebrity in Guardian yeah. Saints. Saying circles. I mean, we, yeah. we do know that the Saints fans that listen to this are obviously very well informed. <laughs> they're an international jet set. They're literati. Yeah. Nick Kingston, do you remember him? He's written to us a few times. Yeah. Often to complain about William Porteous Blythe's appearances on the podcast. It's bad language. <laughs> he says, Hi, lads. Good to hear you again. Hopefully, it's a regular thing again. Regards, Nick. I, I like that from Nick. Hi, Nick. Pithy to the point. Yeah, but you know that's that's high praise for us from Nick. <laughs> um, Daniel Atkins also great to have you guys back. Any more coverage of Saints is a great thing. Um, uh, he's also offering his his uh, where's Tom? Oh, he wants to be a pundit. 
I find it hard enough to find a time for both of us to even get together. <laughs> I mean, my children are just, they really try and conspire to ruin our opportunities to get this happening. Well, two kids, John. I mean, that's, you're a brave man. You're one kid braver than I. So, uh, yeah, they just don't get it, do they? They're always with their, I'm tired, I'm hungry. Yeah, or I'm not tired and I'm hungry and I don't want to go to sleep. Get over it, kids. But yeah. Um, anyway, so the, uh, listeners, it was it was good to be back. I've really enjoyed speaking to Tom, and um, I'd like to do this a few more times. I'm starting a new job next week, the week after. So we'll see how that goes. But you know, I'd like to make this a a thing that we do every now and then. Let's let's do it, John. I'm doing nothing else in the evenings. Yeah. I've got, got a two-year-old. There's, there's no social life for me. So, yeah, I'm very happy with this. See, I did a postgraduate certificate in that period of time when I was trying to figure out what to do with the gaping hole in my evenings. Now I just have a younger child that likes to stay awake until nine o'clock at night and I just feel broken by the time he finally goes to sleep. Yeah, but you don't need that. I mean, Beatrice wakes up at about half five, so that's, but that's bad in its own way. So yeah. there's no perfect child. Right, well, listeners, we'll let you get on. We've been with you for an hour and 22 minutes at, at this point, minus whatever I have to edit out from Tom's visit from the Amazon driver. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, listeners, it's uh, been great to chat about Saints, and um, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the new ownership and when you think Saints are going to be going for the rest of the season and what you think this means for the long-term future of Saints. So do email us saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us Saints FC Podcast on Twitter. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, John. Lovely to, to speak and, and see you and um, let's catch up soon. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's not where, oh, where the Saints go marching in, is it? That's better. <laughs>